0: Hey, before this video begins, I just wanted to mention how we hooked up with iPage for those who need web hosting. For those who are unaware, iPage is, well, as I already mentioned, a web hosting platform allowing you to build your own website to start your own business and gives you the tools you need to market it out to the world. I don't need to tell you how helpful something like this is, especially in a year like 2020, where almost half the American population lost their jobs due to COVID-19, and giving at least one person out there the ability to work for themselves in this crazy climate would at the very least allow me to sleep a little easier at night. Just to be clear, I will make a commission off this affiliate for every purchase made, and if you're interested, slash want to support the channel, you can sign up to iPage through my affiliate link in the description. Once again, thank you to iPage for this opportunity, and now on with the video! You ever have a game that makes you want to grit your teeth in frustration when you play it, but you secretly love playing it anyways? Personally speaking, I've only become familiar with this form of masochism recently, thanks to games like God Hand, Mega Man X, and my climb through ranked mode in Dragon Ball Fighters. all of which double as my explanation for why my blood pressure is so high. But on top of them all, the game I love to play that frustrates me to no end has to be Yakuza Kiwami, a remake of Yakuza 1 using Zero's engine, adding in a few more bells and whistles to differentiate itself from the former title. Now, it's important to mention that I've never played Yakuza 1 at the point of making this video, so I can't say how good of a job Kiwami does on remaking that game. But what I can tell you is how much time it took me to warm up to this game. At first, I really didn't like Kiwami, as it gave me a sense of combat whiplash when coming over from Zero. It was just too much that changed at once, and I wasn't ready to adapt to all the new mechanics Kiwami had to offer. But over time, things finally began to click, and I gained a new appreciation for how differently the game controlled. Still, this video is titled the way that it is for a certain reason, as despite liking the game, there are a handful of things that rub me the wrong way about it, and believe you me, we'll be going through all of them, as we talk about Yakuza Kiwami. The game begins on a stormy night, where our main character, Kiryu Kazuma, stands over the bloody corpse of his former boss, Sohei Dojima. While sirens blare from outside the office, Kiryu makes no haste in leaving, instead taking the time to pick up a ring off the floor with the name Yumi engraved in it, giving the cops ample time to arrest him. As a fan whose first Yakuza game was Zero, this scene hit me a lot harder than I think it was originally intended to. Seeing Dojima dead on the floor threw me for a loop, as by the way Zero ended, it made me think that he was going to have some significant role in later games. But, more importantly than that, seeing that his murderer was Kiryu was a big pill to swallow after Zero's ending. Seeing as Nishikiyama made Kiryu promise that when the time came, they'd cross the line together as brothers. In fact, it was a little too big. Kiryu's actions prior to his arrest let on that the situation was more complicated than it seemed, which the game wastes no time in diving into, flashing us back to earlier in the night. Long story short, after completing a collection run and celebrating his love interest Yumi's birthday by giving her a ring with her name engraved in it, Kitty returns to the Kazuma family office so he can drop the collection money off, only to be met with trouble the moment his ass touches the seat. Thanks to a phone call from Runa, Serena's mama, asking Kitty to help after Dojima had just forced himself onto Yumi and snatched her off the street, causing Nishiyama to give Chase with the gun in his hand. Kazuma then tries to quell his temper to prevent him from doing anything stupid. But unfortunately, he's talking to Kiryu, who bolts out the door making a beeline for Dojima's office. Once he enters the building, he finds Dojima dead on the floor, Yumi cowering in the corner, and Nishikiyama holding a gun, shaking from the act he just committed. It's a hell of a sight. But despite that, Kiryu puts on his big boy pants and shoves the both of them out of the room, telling Nishikiyama to look after Yumi while he's gone, looping us back into the intro where the cops arrest Kiryu for what he now claims to be a money dispute. However, while the rest of the police station is ready to throw the book at Kiryu, a lone cop by the name of Makoto Date sees right through his lies, knowing that he was around the corner from becoming the patriarch of his own family. And to suddenly throw literal years of work out the window for a couple of pennies just doesn't add up. Despite Date's arguments, Kiryu was incarcerated regardless, thanks to him effectively writing his name on the crime scene, serving ten years for a crime he didn't commit. And to add salt on the wound, only one person visited him in that time, and it was his lackey Shinji, who strangely enough delivered a Tojo Clan suspension letter instead of an expulsion one, and right before his visiting time was up, tells Kiryu that Yumi went missing shortly after his arrest. While shook up from hearing this, Kiryu can't do anything about it seeing as he's in jail, and so he places his faith in Nishikiyama and Shinji, hoping that they can resolve the situation without him. Ten years later, when he finally makes parole, Kiryu gets a letter from Kazuma, in which he apologizes for not visiting him up to this point, and says that he has a lot to tell Kiryu, but due to the current events, he's incapable of doing so. So, he sends him to visit a host club he's protecting by the name of Stardust, and find its owner Kazuki, who'll fill him in on said current events. At Stardust, after administering the secret handshake to Kazuki's right-hand man Yuya, Kazuki explains to Kiryu that the Tojo clan is in deep trouble, with 10 billion yen going missing from the clan's funds, leading most patriarchs to throw a conniption at the news. It should be noted that said news was provided by one of the newer patriarchs of the Tojo clan, Nishiyama, getting a tip from Terada of the Omi Alliance, whose faction is the main rival to the Tojo clan. Adding on to this, Kazuki further explains that 10 years ago, the Dojima family was untouchable thanks to the Kazuma family's large numbers. But thanks to Nishiyama trying to go independent with the help of Terada, it severely weakened the Kazuma family's manpower, allowing a turf war to erupt which we see happening right now, as Shimano's men storm the building trying to take Stardust over from Kazuma. Needless to say, Nishikiyama isn't Kazuma's favorite person in the world right now. In fact, Kazuma trusts Nishiyama so little that he planted a mole in his family to inform him of Nishikiyama's every move. And wouldn't you know it, said mole turns out to be Shinji, who lends a helping hand in fending off Shimano's men. And Shinji couldn't have come at a much better time, as Kazuki further exposits that the chairman of the Tojo clan, Masaru Sera, was suddenly found dead, with a funeral being held for him tomorrow. Since all the participating Yakuza will be preoccupied with the funeral, this will be the most opportune time, for Kazuma and Kiryu to finally have their chat. But seeing as Kiryu is still a rather infamous man in the Tojo clan, he's going to need a bit of help getting in unnoticed. And that's where Shinji comes into play. Thanks to Shinji giving the John Madden breakdown of the nooks and crannies of Tojo HQ, Kiryu is able to sneak into the place flawless... Go to, sleep, go to 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 sleep. But wouldn't you know it, the moment Kazuma meets Kiryu and decides to open his mouth, he's shot by a sniper, the sound of gunfire causing Yakuza to flood into the room, and of course, since Kiryu is the only other person in the room, they all assume he's the shooter and rush him. While capable of tossing a good chunk of Tojo's officers to the curb, this isn't a fight that Kiryu wants, and at the first chance he gets, he runs for it, getting a surprise assist from Date, arriving at the of the to Tojo HQ with a getaway car raring to go. As the two speed off, they then decide to check off the heat in a bar where Kiryu asks Date why he helped, to which Date replies saying that thanks to his behavior during Kiryu's incarceration, he's been demoted into Division 4, organized crime. And if that weren't enough, his wife and daughter ended up leaving him shortly after his demotion. Date makes it clear that he harbors resentment towards Kiryu, but he puts it to the side in order to focus on his job. And in order to do said job, he's going to need Kiryu's help. Seeing that the stolen 10 billion yen, Seta's death, and Kiryu's framing all happen in extremely quick succession to Kiryu's release, it leads Date to believe that whomever's at the helm of this wanted to set him up specifically. So, by working with Kiryu, Date figures he'll eventually find something that leads into the Mastermind. Fortunately, they don't have to wait. As Kiryu tells Date just before he was shot, Kazuma had mentioned something about the 10 billion yen and it having something to do with the currently missing Yumi. It ain't much, but it's all they have for the time being. So, the two men split up, Date tackling the 10 billion yen, while Kiryu tries to find anything he can about Yumi. This is where the game really opens up, allowing you to explore Kamurocho at your leisure. As expected, since Kiwami is running on Zero's engine, a number of assets are reused, including mini-games, character models, and the overworld you explore all of which in some way, shape, or form reference Zero, which I honestly really like. I mean, the references are just small winks and nods to Zero, and it probably didn't take much time for them to put in, but getting the chance to reinteract with some of these goofballs in Kiwami made me feel a little more connected to Kamurocho this time around. In fact, seeing these goofs return made me want to re-explore the city that I already knew like the back of my hand, just to see what else I could recognize from Zero from sight alone. And of course, the structure that easily caught my eye was the Millennium Tower, formerly known as the Empty Lot. Can't say I'm too big a fan of it given Zero's story and the fact that it took away an alleyway that I used to cut through all the time in Zero, but I gotta admit that at the very least it does look impressive and is one of the few unique areas to Kiwami. Unfortunately, it's only explorable and story events, so eh, but whatever. Not everything Kiwami takes from Zero as this cut and dried a reference, as aspects of the game have been given a lot more meat on the bones, such as the next topic combat. Now, carrying over from Zero are the styles Kidyu had to obtain throughout the game, being available from the very start of Kiwami. This includes the Dragon of Dojima style, which is now selectable by pressing down on the D-pad, making it a lot more convenient to access in the middle of combat. In addition to styles, Kiwami also carries over style switching from the armor piece known as the Quick Change Clothes. But on top of making it an innate ability on Kiryu's skill tree, it is also heavily improved upon. While you can't style switch from any hint in a combo like you could in Zero, you can style switch after combo finishers, dodging, getting hit, or getting knocked down. In addition, when you switch from one of these points, you cancel the animation that would normally play, keeping the pace of the fight consistent while enabling all sorts of combos and defensive shenanigans that were previously impossible. However, with a much stronger Kiryu, needs to come much stronger AI to pose a challenge to the player. And this is where my initial impressions of Kiwami fell off a cliff. While the early bosses in the game start out as a complete cakewalk, things quickly change when you reach the halfway point as bosses become a lot smarter, dodging out of combos that aren't true, and come equipped with an absurd amount of armor frames on literally everything they do. And if that weren't enough, depending on how you decide to play the game, you can potentially encounter a boss fight every three minutes thanks to the brand new system taking advantage of everyone's favorite Cyclops in the form of the Majima Everywhere system. I'll go into more detail about the system later, but what's important to know now is that Majima is effectively Mr. Shakedown and will randomly roam the streets trying to initiate a boss fight with you. It should be noted that these boss fights with Majima are completely optional and you can run away just like with regular fights. But sometimes you won't get the chance as certain points on the map will initiate boss fights regardless of your intention. Thinking back, I'm surprised I still have my teeth considering how the latter half of the game's bosses made me grit them in frustration. I distinctly remember having such a miserable time with the bosses in Kiwami that I decided to stop searching for sub-stories and just get the main story over with so I no longer had to play the game anymore. At the time, I seriously thought I was never going to touch Kiwami again, but thankfully, I decided to make a video about it, and then everything changed. You wanna know how? Well, I actually decided to use style switching instead of playing the game by air. I know admitting to something like this is just asking to be made fun of in the comment section, but yes, when I played Kiwami for the first time, I did not utilize style switching at all. Why? Well, because I simply think I didn't need to use it. Here's the thing, while I've played tons of games with style switching in the past, I was never expected to use style switching at all, which allowed me to get by just fine in those games. In Kiwami, however, bosses are made assuming that you're using the new style switching routes at all, which is where my problems stem from. An example that I think will resonate with the Metal Gear heads out there is the monsoon boss fight in Metal Gear Rising. I'm sure people going into this fight were aware that Raiden can parry attacks, getting it once or twice by accident, but wasn't sure how to trigger it on command, leading to this fight's specifically to be borderline unbeatable as it's designed to be beaten with the parry. It's only when you know how to activate the parry however that this fight becomes a massive cakewalk and that sentiment is largely similar to the latter bosses in Kiwami. Sure bosses have super armor and dodge out of your attacks which is strong and all but what does that matter when in this situation you have god knows how many options to go into the moment you see them dodge or armor through your attacks and even if you get punished you can style switch in disadvantage. At no point in the game does the AI ever have more options than you do. Now, don't get me wrong, Kiwami is still a difficult game to play. Using style switching doesn't break the game, it just makes things a lot more manageable. As if you give the AI so much as an inch, it'll take your car, your girlfriend, and your house in the blink of an eye. And on that note, while I believe most of Kiwami to have a fair challenge with the majority of its bosses, I believe that there is a special place in hell for bosses that use guns in this game. Because even on the replay, while using style switching, they are an honest to goodness mess that shouldn't even exist, effectively using the armor frames to run away from you as they pump you full of lead. Which, by the way, stagger on hit, forcing you to mash your way off the floor, only to get hit with it again. Thankfully, there are only two gun-wielding bosses in the game, so you don't have to deal with it much, but it's still a headache nonetheless. Another thing I still don't like, however, even on the revisit, are the boss-exclusive heat actions known as Climax Heat. While I dig the concept of bosses having their own exclusive heat actions, and appreciate the fact that all four styles have their own special animations for Climax Heat, I feel that the execution is a bit clumsy, as Climax Heat can only be activated when a boss is hunched over, regenerating health. And on top of that, you don't even get to choose which Climax Heat you perform, as the game will color coat the boss, indicating the style that the Climax Heat is supposed to be used in. All in all, it just feels like a cumbersome pacebreaker, given how much attention you need to give to this mechanic that you can't even use when you want to. If Climax Heat were to return in a future game, I'd honestly want them to first and foremost not bring the fight to a screeching halt and be available outside of boss fights. Being activated by doing a special input like forward-back-triangle or rotate the analog stick 360 degrees triangle or something like that. At the very least, you don't have to use Climax Heat when a boss is hunched over as the game accepts regular heat actions just fine, which helps with heat action scaling as later bosses will enter the hunched over state more than once a fight. Be aware, though, they have to be either weapon-related or activated when you're standing still, the latter of which is only possible in the Dragon of Dojima style, which got so many changes from Zero that it honestly deserves its own section of the video. Now, I haven't talked about it much up to this point, but the Dragon of Dojima style is super strong in this game, retaining a lot of the strengths it had in Zero and becoming even stronger than that in the transition to Kiwami. While attacking is still hampered by heat consumption, certain abilities are no longer tied to heat, giving the Dragon of Dojima a lot more versatility when you're running on empty. I'm mostly referring to the defensive options the style has, the most notable of them being the counter move called Tiger Drop, which, contrary to the name, has not dropped actual tigers, but can damn well drop everything else, doing so much damage per use that it practically obliterates the competition. Of course, with such power comes giant hurdles to jump through in order to obtain said power. And that's where the Majima Everywhere system comes into play. So, as we established earlier, Kiryu spent 10 long years in prison. But what I didn't tell you was those years were spent being a model prisoner sitting on his hands, patiently waiting for his parole to come about. As such, he's weakened tremendously with all his styles getting set to their base form, with the exception being the Dragon of Dojima, which starts out as the worst style at your disposal, having literally one punch to to his name. While Kitty is notably miffed by this, there's someone who's even more disappointed by his lack of strength, being Majima who develops the Majima Everywhere system as a means to get him back up to snuff. Now wherever Kiryu goes, whenever he takes a bite to eat, god help him even play a friggin video game, Majima will be there, waiting for his time to strike. First off, this is my favorite video game reasoning for a character being depowered from one game to the next, as it makes actual sense why he can't operate like he used to. That aside, I mentioned that the Majima Everywhere system was meant to get the Dragon of Dojima style back up to snuff but I don't think I conveyed how literally the game takes it. The Dragon of Dojima style does not get upgrades via experience points, but you are awarded upgrades depending on what version of Majima you fight at specific times in the game, Majima's different versions being distinguished by what costume he has on. This is what I meant when I said earlier you can have a boss fight every three or so minutes depending on how you play. As with Majima holding the keys to your strongest style, you're incentivized to find him as much as possible, despite Kiryu's growing irritation with the man. However, while I don't have a problem with these fights, I do have a problem with how upgrades are distributed. Because upgrades are awarded, you don't have a choice of what you get, which can lead to the Dragon of Dojima style receiving some pretty underwhelming upgrades early on, like getting the Kali Sticks heat action in the first few hours of the game while the basic combo was held off to near the end of the game. On top of that, each version of Majima has a different encounter rate, which means that at points, it can feel like you're grinding random encounters in a traditional RPG, which can get tedious. But, I understand why it's like this. Because if you gave the player free reign to choose their upgrades, this would be the strongest style in no time flat. Thankfully not all the upgrades are relegated to the Majima Everywhere system, as the Tiger Drop along with various other defensive moves can all be tamed through Komaki, a homeless man who trains Kiryu to use his martial art techniques. The only caveat though is that in order to learn said techniques, you have to buy his painting backs from the Colosseum. And unfortunately, they don't take Yen as currency, meaning that you're going to have to earn Colosseum Points in order to buy them back. The actual gameplay aside, I love the Majima Everywhere system, as it's a good source of zany fun that I love about the series, as Majima goes a whole nine yards and harassing Kiryu, catfishing him at nightclubs, convincing Kiryu that zombies exist, and serving up trash water to Kiryu while he moonlights at a bar. Majima does it all, and his antics only manage to get funnier as the game goes on. There's one more thing I'd like to comment on about the system, but it's a rather late thing into the story, so I'm going to have to hold off on it for the time being. Another section of Kiwami that manages to slap is a soundtrack. Now, I'll say this right now, but in comparison to Kiwami, I greatly prefer Zero's soundtrack, mostly due to its sheer diversity, providing great disco, techno, rock, and whatever genre the cabaret club hostess select screen would be placed in. But with that being said, Kiwami has some really strong tracks that'll put you in the mood for smacking punks around. Some of my personal favorites are The Funk Goes On for being a well, funky piece, whose bouncy tunes make fighting random encounters way more fun than they should be. Son of a Gun, with its opening buildup making it a generally fun power trip song. And of course... Like, come on, guys, you saw this one coming. The meme has been everywhere. But I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Receive You Reborn, a remix of the original Receive You, this version being specifically made to fit the conflict of this story, while the original is more or less a love song. That's not to say that I believe Reborn is better than the original, I just appreciate how the song is more focused on what's happening throughout Kiwami's story, which I'm itching to get back into. So, what do you say we cut the pretenses and wrap this up, shall we? Continuing where I originally left off after splitting up from Date, Kiryu goes to Yumi's former workplace, Serena, where he asks Serena if she knows anything about Yumi. To his surprise, she does, but it's not about Yumi directly, but her estranged sister, Mizuki, who came by looking for Yumi some odd years ago and opened up a bar somewhere in Kamurocho. Unfortunately, Reina never found out the bar's location, so she sends Kiryu back to the other bar he just came from, as the owner apparently knows all the bars in Kamurocho. But the moment he gets there, he realizes that a Silent Tornado just recently passed through, leaving dead bodies all over the place. And surprisingly, the only person left alive was a nine-year-old girl hiding in the corner holding a gun. The girl's name is Haruka and she too is searching for Mizuki as she is her estranged daughter, being forced to grow up in Sunflower Orphanage while being visited by Yumi in her mother's place. Sick and tired of living in an orphanage despite knowing that she has a mother out there that loves her, Haruka makes a trip to Kamurocho to find and live with Mizuki. Thinking that she could have useful information, Kiryu brings Haruka on board the team, in a sense kidnapping her. Thankfully, his illegal deed does pay off, as Haruka leads Kiryu right into Mizuki's bar on the top floor of Millennium Tower, where a bunch of Omi Alliance members are waiting for them, or more specifically, waiting for Haruka. For what reason? They won't say. But a phone call from Date does clear up a bit of the confusion, telling Kiryu that at the crime scene where the 10 billion yen was stolen, he found the ring he gave Yumi 10 years ago, and suspects that she had accomplice with her being Mizuki. Kiryu fends off the Yomi, but they don't come any closer to figuring out why they were after Haruka. That is until Shinji calls Kiryu, telling him that he's taking Kazuma from the hospital and placed him into hiding, just in case anyone tries to finish a job. This spurs Kiryu into seeking out the help of a man known as the Florist, an information broker who uses homeless people along with a number of cameras set up around Kamurocho to spy on everyone who inhabits the city. But during Kiryu's visit, he's pulled to the side due to the Majuma family who roughed up Date and kidnapped Haruka so that Kiryu had a reason to fight, Majima. After beating the Majima family up, Haruka tells him that while she was captured, a strange man approached her and released her from her bindings, telling her to keep her mother's pendant close as it's worth 10 billion yen. From this point onwards Haruka gets tossed around like a hot potato, as street gangs, other Yakuza and even the Chinese mafia appear out of the woodwork to obtain the 10 billion yen. Of course, one of those enemies is Nishikiyama, and this is where Kiwami truly begins to shine. In the original game, the writers paid little attention to the villains and spent their time developing the heroes of the story, which isn't inherently bad, however Nishikiyama in particular is motivated by his jealousy towards Kiryu, and the game never really goes into why he's jealous, which makes it feel like his heel turn came out of nowhere, seeing as he was acting all buddy-buddy with Kiryu in the intro. In Kiwami, however, there are brand new cutscenes at the end of each chapter that detail Nishikiyama's heel turn, where, in the span of ten years while Kiryu was arrested, his life just fell to pieces. It all started when his sister's vague Japanese illness worsened, causing Nishikiyama to focus all his attention and money on her treatment. Unfortunately, as a brand new patriarch with borrowed men who don't want to work for him, buildings and money proved to be a challenge eventually causing Nishiyama to allow his men to do their own things to collect the money he needs. This had very obvious problems, causing a lot of friction between Nishikiyama and his friends as well as garnering a ton of abuse from his subordinates, all of whom managed to share the exact same sentiment, saying that if Kiryu was here, none of this would happen, which he took on the chin for the sake of his sister. Everything then comes to a head when Nishiyama finally gets all the money he needs for the surgery, only for the doctor to dip on him once he got the money, using it to pay off his debts and flee Kamurocho. Knowing that all the abuse he just suffered was for nothing, Nishikiyama gets ready to end his life. But thanks to one of his subordinates walking in to smack him in the face with Kiryu's dick, he stabs him instead, cementing his transformation as Kiryu's antagonist. This backstory combined with his characterization in Zero makes Nishikiyama one of my favorite characters in the series up to this point, and one of the reasons why I trudged through Kiwami despite not liking him much the first time around. It was just so heartbreaking to see him not only fall, but develop resentment towards Kiryu, who in reality didn't do anything but try and help his brother out when he thought he needed him the most. One of the most interesting bits about Nishiyama trying to take Haruka is that he actually calls Kiryu up and decides to talk it over with him and hopefully convince him to hand her over. What follows is a really awkward conversation, running juxtaposition with the earlier cutscenes in the game, where their conversations flowed naturally and you can get a really good sense for how close the two were. It doesn't help that Nishiyama proceeds to throw their brotherhood down the toilet by admitting that he's the one who shot Kazuma earlier at Seta's funeral, which causes Kiryu to serve him a knuckle sandwich and throw him out the bar. It's just really sad to see how far they've drifted apart and how Nishikiyama's warp mindset is preventing them from patching things up. But you know, as interesting as I find Nishikiyama, there's another character that really sold me on Kiwami's story. And that's none other than the source of Nishikiyama's jealousy, Kiryu. But before I talk about what I liked about Kiryu, I first want to cover what I didn't like. And to do that, we have a cutscene in Chapter 11, where after being warned by Majima to take a cab to avoid thugs who are getting ready to jump him, Kiryu is taken to the harbor, where he finds Majima waiting for him. Kiryu figures that this is another one of his ploys to get him to fight, but to his surprise, the thugs Majima mention arrive, causing the two to team up to thwart their plans. During the fight, Majima gets injured and falls into the harbor, to which Kiryu just walks away. Now, I understand that Majima was annoying Kiryu left, right, and sideways, and that getting to Kazuma was currently on his mind, but even on my first playthrough, I thought this was so out of character. In Zero, Kiryu was willing to go to bat for Oda despite the fact that Oda was going to kill him at one point in the story, but did so anyways because he sacrificed himself at the last minute. And from that, it seems a little odd that Kiryu wouldn't extend the exact same kindness to Majima considering that he not only saved his life, but was also helping him for literally the whole game no matter what Kiryu thought about it. This is unfortunately a problem that Kiwami has Uniquely because of the Majima Everywhere system. In short, Majima was only said to appear in three different points points. points in the original game, and in one of those points, he's injured. However, because of the Majima Everywhere system, he's up and about shortly after he was supposed to be out of commission, so they needed to write a new reason for Majima to be injured when he originally came back. And unfortunately, it came at the cost of Kiryu's character consistency, along with the surprise revealed that he's back, which, because of how often you see Majima, just comes off as another regular appearance. It does lead into a cool boss fight in a crumbling building, alongside a cool character moment for Majima, where he respects a woman's loyalty to her beloved and lets her go. So, I can't be too mad at it, but... I digress. Kiryu goes through a lot in this game, which then goes on to define him throughout the whole series, and half of which Haruka is responsible for. Now, having to be in charge of a child opens up new avenues in terms of interactions, especially when the person in charge of said child is neck deep in the criminal underworld. While Kiryu rarely talks down to Haruka, he has to at points talk around her, not wanting to ruin her innocent child mind, only to find out that she already knows what he's talking about nine times out of ten. Interacting with Haruka also allows Kiryu to tap into his softer side, which, at least looking at Zero, he never really did, only getting angrier as the game went on. This is mainly brought about when Kiryu and Date find reason to believe that Mizuki died recently, and neither of them want to tell Haruka until they confirm it. The lack of respect she's shown gets her all pissy, causing her to run away into the hands of another enemy faction, which Kiryu has to save her from and then has to break the news to her about Mizuki. More than than anything, you see Kiryu struggle to get the words out and almost tear up in the process. Not because he knew Mizuki well, but because he doesn't want to see Haruka sad. And Haruka, having her whole motivation to come to Kamarocho in the first place ripped away from her, treats it like any normal nine-year-old would and sees it like a minor inconvenience. Yeah, Haruka is absurdly mature for her age, but that's neither here nor there. The other half of Kiryu's development comes from loss, similar to Nishiyama, and boy, does he lose a lot. It all starts out when Kiryu becomes aware that Nishikiyama is aptly prepared whenever they decide to make a move, causing him to ask the floor to look into it, finding out that Rena was a source of the leak, hoping to catch Nishiyama's eyes with her impressive bootlicking skills. But right before Kiryu heads over to her, she has a change of heart and attempts to kill Nishikiyama, which goes horribly wrong somehow managing to drag Shinji into her mess as he gets shot in her place, causing the both of them to run for it. The two make it far, but not far enough, as one of Nishikiyama's men named Arase guns them down, prompting a rage-induced response from Kiryu as he deals with Arase. Things start to look up right after Shinji dies God, that sentence sounds weird. as he tells him that his girlfriend, who works at Shangri-La, knows where Kazuma is. And after the aforementioned boss fight with Majima, she informs him that Kazuma is hiding on a ship in the harbor. When Kiryu and Haruka head down to the ship, they see Terada guarding Kazuma. As it turns out, Terada was another mole Kazuma kept on Nishikiyama, and is absurdly loyal to Kazuma, claiming that just like Hiryu, he owes him a debt that can never be repaid. More on that in the future. When Kiryu and Haruka finally meet Kazuma, he goes into quite the exposition, telling them that not only did he find Yumi shortly after her disappearance, but after she recovered from an amnesia stint, he, Yumi, and Seta were the ones who stole the 10 billion yen, all to keep the true owner of the money, a powerful politician, at bay. Who is this politician? Well, it's none other than Haruka's biological father, Jingu, who in the past has tried to have Seta murder both Haruka and Yumi in an attempt to secure his newfound political power by eliminating evidence of an affair. Why is Yumi so important to this equation? Well, it's because she's Haruka's biological mom. Who's Mizuki then? Also Yumi, or rather an alias she went under to hide from Jingu for reasons I already explained. Thankfully Kazuma was there the night the murder was supposed to go down, and after taking out the assassin, Kazuma had a chat with Seta, who by the way was in the exact same room as the assassin when he got gunned down. Meaning that he got there first, so why didn't he just do the deed himself? Well, Gaps and logic aside, Kazuma convinces Seta to rise up against Jingu, who up to this point has actually been a major benefactor to the Tojo clan, leading Seta to basically be his lapdog in situations like right now. Unfortunately for Kazuma, in a financial drought, money talks rather loudly to Yakuza as Shimano and his men come out to play in the middle of Kazuma's exposition, throwing grenades at Kazuma's ship, hoping to force him into giving Haruka up, bringing Kiryu into action. Even though Kiryu beats Shimano, in a last ditch effort, he chucks one more grenade at Haruka, causing Kazuma to jump in the way as Terada shoots Shimano dead. Despite looking extremely well for a man who just got blown up, Kazuma is on his last legs and hands Kiryu as will, telling him that Tojo Clan's future Sure rests in there. Kazuma then follows that up by telling Kiryu and Haruka that Jingu's 10 billion yen was actually embezzlement money, as he used the Tojo clan to run a money laundering scheme, which, in addition to him trying to kill Yumi and Haruka, made Kazuma want to expunge him from the clan entirely. Kazuma also mentioned that not only did Yumi join the crusade voluntarily, but she is still alive right now and is currently laying low inside her bar. Feeling the remainder of her strength slip away, Kazuma tells both Haruka and Kiryu that Sunflower was an orphanage that housed the children of parents he murdered. This news doesn't affect either of them as Kiryu tries to tell him that throughout his life he's always seen Kazuma as his father, but he passes on before he can get the words out, leading Kiryu to break down at this development. Following the message Kazuma had left them right before he died, Kiryu and Haruka head back to Yumi's bar where they find Yumi and share a rather sweet moment with her. Unfortunately, this reunion doesn't last long as Jingu and his men arrive at the bar via helicopter and threaten the group with guns. Terada arrives at the last second to try and help with a small army of Omi members, but Jingu reveals that he's now switched sides to the Omi Alliance, which means that Terada's men are under his control and gets knocked out almost immediately. Jingu continues threatening them until Yumi makes a rather convincing counter-argument by holding up a bomb and threatening to detonate it unless he lets Haruka and herself skirt from the scene. Thanks to the bomb, Yumi manages to get herself and Haruka out of harm's way. But Kiryu, on the other hand, stays to fight Jingu, having a number of personal matters to settle not only on the behalf of Kazuma, but the entire Tojo clan as well, seeing as Seta's will has just labeled him as the fourth chairman of the Tojo clan. Living up to his own hype, Kiryu takes out a handful of Jingu's highly trained men, but is beginning to slow down. However, when more of Jingu's men come in for backup, Date and another detective who I never mentioned, named Sudo, have arrived on the scene with evidence of Jingu's connection to the Tojo clan. Jingu says that they have no evidence and proceeds to make his argument ironclad by shooting at Date and Sudo. They both leave, as a helicopter can't fly when it's full of holes, but Sudo brings up an interesting point way before this whole shooting goes down, in what does Jingu plan on doing with the money when he gets it? This question won't be answered here, but keep it in the back of your mind, as it will be answered way later in the pipeline. Anyways, after one more round, Kiryu wipes the floor with Jingu and his remaining men, only to then encounter Nishiyama, who's here to torch his will and return the 10 billion yen to the Tojo clan, so that he can cement himself as the fourth chairman in the eyes of the other Yakuza. Also while he's here, he plans on winning Yumi over, hoping that she ignores the fact that he was working alongside the guy who tried to kill her daughter. Nishiyama's lack of understanding comes from the incident 10 years ago when he lost everything, and now has come to the conclusion that in order to change his fate, he must sacrifice everything. Including the people he love, like Kazuma and Reina. Hiryu and Yumi try to talk to Nishiyama, telling him that sacrificing others won't do anything but make him unhappy, and that if he wants to change his fate, he needs to accept the pain of loss and move on ahead despite it. But Nishiyama doesn't want to listen, instead, snapping at the two of them, initiating the final boss. The final battle with Nishiyama isn't particularly difficult, especially with the Dragon of Dojima style fully upgraded but it does manage to pull on a few heartstrings, flashing back to earlier events in the story where Nishiyama and Kiryu were still friends, which only makes me more sad that things turned out the way they did. After knocking out Nishiyama, Kiryu picks up Haruka's pendant, which Yumi reveals has this picture inside of it, with Yumi saying that when she had amnesia, memories of Kiryu slowly came back to her, telling him that this caused a void to open in her heart which she was looking to patch as soon as possible, which is where Jingu came into play. Yumi then continues by saying one of the few things she cherished in her time with Jingu is Haruka, so she wanted her to have what Yumi held close to her heart, being the picture inside the pendant. Yumi then takes the pendant and uses it to unlock the safe with the 10 billion yen, setting the bomb inside the safe so she could bring the nightmare to an end but just as everyone drops their guard, Kitty is shot in the leg by Jingu, the injury leaving him open for another attack, which Haruka jumps in the way of. But instead of Haruka getting shot, Yumi's hit instead, jumping in front of Haruka at the very last second. Overcome with grief, Kiryu stops paying attention to Jingu, but thankfully, Nishikiyama is still conscious thanks to Kiryu's featherweight fist and stabs Jingu in the chaos. Nishikiyama then picks up Jingu's gun and decides to take responsibility for his actions by setting off the bomb inside the safe, killing himself and Jingu bring this whole mess to an end which Kiryu tries to talk him out of Stop. 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 nishiki nishiki But the string of deaths aren't done yet, as the bullet Yumi took proves to be fatal, using the last ounce of her strength to tell Haruka not to run away from her problems, otherwise her happiness will slip away just like hers did. The fighting is over, and Kiryu has won the war, but lost all the battles he cared about fighting, and so he just gives up completely. Thankfully, Date arrives to snap Kiryu out of his minute-long depression, telling him not to run away from the pain like Nishiyama and Yumi did and reminds him that Yumi left Haruka behind, and now more than ever, she needs him to look after her. So, Kiryu immediately sobers up and resigns from his position as chairman of the Tojo clan, at which he then appoints Terada, who is an interesting choice, but as Kiryu puts it, he trusts Terada because Kazuma trusted him, and once that's over, he meets with Haruka in Theater Square, and walks out of Kamurocho, ready to start life over as Haruka's father figure. I cannot tell you how much I love this ending. Not only because it continues to show how human Kiryu is, but also because he shows so many different emotions with each loved one he loses. Like sure, Rena and Shinji hurt like hell, but losing Kazuma caused Kiryu, the Dragon of Dojima, a one-man wrecking machine, to break down and cry. And then with Nishkiyama and Yumi, he was just done with the whole thing. God knows what he would've done to himself if it weren't for Haruka. Another thing I like is that how events of this game have a pretty big effect on Kiryu, where he straight up quits the Tojo clan and decides to move on with his life, not wanting to drag the few friends he has left into this toxic underworld. Also regarding Haruka, as cliched as it may be for a child character to soften up a normally rigid older man, I do think it's done extremely well here, to the point where I describe it as heart melting. The two get a lot of time to warm up to one another, showing that they care and rely on each other to get them through this event. Which makes the scene where Kiryu decides to raise Haruka feel like the greatest payoff the game. I also love that they took the opportunity to expand on a lot of the now deceased characters through Zero. I know this doesn't exactly have anything to do with Kiwami, but as a newcomer, it definitely made their deaths all the more surprising, as they all came off as characters that would last a long while. It took a bit of time for me to see the forest for the trees with Kiwami, but now that I have, I honestly can't get enough of it. Is Kiwami the best Yakuza game I played? No, as Zero sits on that throne firmly, but Kiwami's got its own thing going on that makes it interesting enough to warrant a playthrough to see if it's your jam. And boy, what a time it is, because as of this recording, Kiwami, alongside Zero, is now available on all major platforms. So if this video has piqued your interest about the series, you now have an outlet to feed said interest.